Starting with our panel, we've been going through the stories in the Sunday papers, joined by John Isle, former markets editor with Sunday Business Post, and now head of communications for Good Body, Dr. Lona Duffy, GP in Monaghan, medical director for North East Doctor on Call, and Larry Donnelly, law lecturer in NUIG, and he has his Galway t-shirt on. Larry, are you heading to the match? I'm not. No, I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch it at home with my son. But I should say, Oz is a divided house because my wife is originally from Limerick, so uh, it'll be interesting anyway. <laughs> so you've both flags at the windows. Just a Galway one. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Will they do it? I think so. Uh, you know, look, I think they're going to have to up their game a little bit from the last outing, but I think uh, I think they'll do it. I think the experience of having played big matches, I think, will stand to them. Uh, but any, anyway, anything can happen on an all-in final day. So ah, we'll yeah, see. it's very exciting. I should mention Kilkenny here as well in the minor match. I've mentioned it already about twice on air today. I'm going to mention it, I'd say, a few more times. I think Galway you. will win that one too. I, I think Galway <laughs> will win that one. Actually, I think if Galway are to have a comfortable victory today, I fear it will be in the minor <laughs> match. But uh, I've fingers crossed for uh, Kilkenny. <laughs> players, a couple of our own club men as well uh, Park Mylan might make an appearance hopefully. John, your kids have slowly been converting you to uh, the, the beauty of the small ball. Uh, that's right, yeah, my son uh, plays hurling for Kula so I've been been along on a lot of those um, chartered train journeys to the, the back ends of faraway counties uh, down the Midlands to see semi-finals and finals as uh, Kula has marched towards uh, consecutive trophies over the last couple of years so yeah, it's a conversion alright. Yeah, you're going to watch the match today? I'll be watching a little bit at home, but I think I probably have a few other things to be doing outside. My son is going to be watching it with his mother today, so uh, Very good. we'll just we'll just let him at it. I think. I don't know. Not much hurling in my I don't know if you were watching up for the match last night, uh, but uh, for a moment I got very excited for Monaghan when they said, uh, when uh, one of the uh, segues was a preview of the Dublin Monaghan All Ireland football final. <laughs> and then they came back afterwards and apologised. Wishful in thinking, watching. wishful thinking. Yeah, unfortunately mm-hmm. not there. Uh, well, look, we'll get through uh, the headlines first and we'll talk about some of the stories inside the papers and some of those headlines. I start with the Sunday Independent spending fears as reality bites the post. Public's confidence about their personal finances has decreased for the first time in three years. This, according to a survey in the Sunday Independent. Another story on the front page I want to mention. Deirdre's parents, Murphy, just one line of inquiry. The parents of Deirdre Jacob have stressed that convicted sex offender Larry Murphy is just one line of inquiry in the investigation. And they've pleaded with the public to keep an open mind. And this is really important. I spoke to Alan Bailey during the week here in News Talk, the retired guard. And he said that everyone knows who did it attitude is actually really dangerous for investigations because if people are out there with information and they think but sure that wasn't Larry Murphy I saw so there's no point in me going forward with that uh, he said that's dangerous people shouldn't fall into that trap so it's a, a very important message from Deirdre Jacobs parents and one's, one we should all heed the front page of the Sunday Business Post Cash for jobs, 100 million paid by IDA to tech giants, banks and big pharma. US firm Abbott Labs received payments totaling 14 million. And these figures have been revealed for the first time as a new new EU disclosures law kicks in. Uh, The Sunday Times leads with boycotts and dropouts mar Pope's arrival. A further dampener has been cast over the Pope's visit next weekend after a second American cardinal called off his trip to the event. Really interesting little subplot as well. They have on the front page of the Sunday Times. Pakistani priests denied visa for pontiff visit. At least five priests in Pakistan were refused visas to attend the World Meeting of Families in Dublin uh, by Irish immigration officials who ruled they had insufficient connection to Ireland and feared that they would not return to Pakistan after the gathering. Uh, The Irish Mail on Sunday leads with priest abusers can't be traced. The Catholic Church's independent safeguarding body has admitted it is impossible for it to know whether clerical abusers referred to in various reports still have access to children. And finally, the Sunday World, uh, Daniel's 10 million euro 
high seas. A drug lord, Daniel Kenahan, has been left reeling after a container ship destined for County Cork carrying 10 million euro worth of cocaine hidden in pineapples was seized in Puerto Rico. Those are the stories on the front pages of all of today's papers. Uh, We might start actually with uh, the Pope and his visit. Loads of coverage uh, in the papers, as I mentioned, on the front pages, but inside all of them as well today. And I imagine that will continue uh, right through the next seven days. Anything, John, that caught your eye in particular? Well, I was just looking... um just looking at the um, front of the Sunday Independent there, that, that bit you mentioned about people feeling economically insecure mm. uh, at this stage, despite the fact that I think we're in about the fifth year of uh, pretty tremendous economic uh, growth following you know, the terrible recession that we suffered. And it, this, is a, this is something we see in, you know, in investment markets and at Goodbody we have a kind of a front row view of people's nervousness about markets especially mm. um, because of the volatility that has, that has remained and that crops up every Every now and then, you know, you've seen it in the last couple of weeks with um, economic problems in Turkey, for instance, and it instantly sort of spooks markets and sends a shudder around the world, even though um, the economic fundamentals are actually very good around yeah. the world, right? So companies are earning a lot of money, um, economies in, you know, Europe, North America, Asia, and so forth continue to grow. All of the numbers tell us things are fine, but there's some kind of post-traumatic uh, feeling around that it could change for the worse at, at any minute. And it's something that's very difficult, I think, to contend with for policymakers, for people selling investment products like ourselves, and then for ordinary people who are, say, looking ahead to their financial futures and saying, can I afford to buy a house? Uh, can I handle the rent that I'm paying now? And is it going to be the same next year? Or am I going to be whacked with a massive increase? So I think there are things that are happening on the ground at mm. the individual level that make people feel very insecure that aren't necessarily picked up in the general growth figures, which say everything is fine. And what are those little things? Those little things are, like I said, I mean, you know, if you're in Dublin or any of the other major cities around Ireland, it's, it's housing costs, right? So somebody entering the market for housing, whether that's renting or buying, yeah. is is in a very tough position. But then there's a, a division between somebody who, say, has owned a house for 20 years, doesn't feel that at all, right? So you also have this differentiation among the population where you have the, the older cohort is actually much better off in terms of assets and probably income than the people coming in. And then, you know, the younger groups in the 20s and 30s feel that, oh, a huge percentage of my income is going towards housing alone. I can't afford a pension. I can't afford uh, to invest. I can't afford to, you know, save for, for luxuries or a holiday or whatever. And you see, the government is responding to this in some way. There's a story, um, I think, also in the Sunday Independent, um, looking at some of the high-level plans for this mandatory pension scheme that the government is going to be rolling yeah. out in the next few years, talking about how they're going to structure that. Um, one thing they're talking about is, say, capping the government contribution for incomes under 75000 Euros. So that seems to be an attempt on the government's part to um, to give something back to those people in the say middle income range who the, you know what what do we call them the the strained middle or something I forget yeah. what the, I forget the, what the cliche squeeze is right middle. the squeeze middle excuse me yeah so so this idea that the government will make a contribution to your pension if you're in this income bracket under seventy five thousand but that leaves the question open that if you're a high income earner. Are you going to are you going to be losing your tax relief now on your pensions? And that's a huge question that would be very very disruptive for that industry. If you're in Finnegale headquarters, Larry, I'm struck that you, you'd see something like this, and you, you, your mind would immediately be cast back to keep the recovery going and how that message was so disconnected from the feeling on the ground. And there'd be a fear that, you know, if you're going into a general election and the likelihood of it, I suppose, is receding maybe somewhat, Mm. an imminent one, that the fear is that, you know, you've got to strike that balance between talking up your job in, in, in keeping the recovery going, but yet not sounding like everyone's boat is kind of floating up to the top. 
Yeah, I think that's true. And I think John's point about the squeeze middle and the, the coping classes, as Owen Harris, I think, famously dubbed them, uh, I think that that's a real issue. And housing is at the center of that. And the shortage of housing and the cost of housing is extraordinary. So uh, Fine Gael made a colossal political mistake in the last uh, general election by saying, keep the recovery going, uh, when the reality is a lot of people you know, aren't feeling that recovery, or if they are feeling a recovery in the sense of what they're taking home in their pockets has improved, uh, their outgoings have, at the same time uh, have increased substantially. So that's the um, that's the real conundrum, I suppose, facing the, the party of government. But just to John's point about global financial uncertainty, uh, I think that's fueled in large part by global political uncertainty. When you have things like the rise of Trump, uh, Brexit, uh, the rise of the right in Europe, people are very uncertain. Trade uh, wars. In, Exactly. And financial uncertainty follows, I think, directly from that political uncertainty. Ilona, is this something that uh, you would see because, you know, another kind of thread in all this would be uh, an urban-rural divide is what you hear as well. You know, that people outside in Dublin, you're very much maybe in tune with the keep the recovery going, isn't everything great. And it's outside maybe that people would feel more acutely some of those issues that John mentioned, some of those costs, you don't see the benefits of recovery. To you, the economy isn't this raging machine that, that, that we're all benefiting from. Absolutely. And I think that is the big thing. All the talk about things improving and on the ground and you see it, people into the surgery still stressed with their financial affairs. And again, that that group who maybe have the mortgages, who have outgoings because of kids and those costs are rising all the time for many of them. So they're they're really struggling. We talk about housing. I have a sister who's hoping to come home herself and her husband to consultants coming back to Ireland and they're trying to get a house at the moment. And they thought their big issue was going to be the schools until a friend rang them and said, you know, forget worrying about the schools, start worrying about a house. So they were on to the state agents and saying that the state agents no longer put the telephone number with the houses that are being advertised because they can up to have up to 500 expressions of interest for one house in Dublin. You know, so it's a joke. And wow. obviously that's feeding the, that's feeding into the whole market prices rising for homes, for houses, for schools and everything. So although they're both initially on way lower salaries, coming back here will be actually at a cost to them because you pay for everything. Uh, you know, over there, if your families, everything's paid for, everything's subsidised in the schools, colleges, etc. None of that's here. We uh, mentioned coping classes uh, that own Harris line there, Larry. And childcare costs, obviously, is something our listeners have always been highlighting. And just to remind people who maybe didn't hear at the start of the show, we have carried out our own survey on childcare and creche costs. And we're going to be going through some of that at 12 county by county breakdown. And we also we did this back about in 2013. So we have a five year comparison as well to see where uh, creche costs have, have increased. And uh, what's interesting in it, actually, because I've seen the, the, the figures is the commuter counties and where they feature and how some of them have jumped up the list as well. And what's considered a commuter county and how that's changed since 2013 uh, you know some of that reflected in these uh, crash fees so we'll be getting back to that uh, just afternoon if we go on to the Pope now Larry there's a huge amount of coverage as I mentioned uh, everywhere in the papers there is a growing sense as well in the coverage today and in the coverage over the last few weeks that uh, the Pope is really going to have to address the issue of uh, you know, legacy institutional abuse in the country. You know, th 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 there was calls for it immediately, but there was a question mark over to what extent it would happen. Now, really, it's a question of how big is the apology going to be, not whether it will happen, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it has to happen. I mean, I think there's no question about it that in terms of 
um, I suppose, reconnecting with Catholics. And I think uh, Eamon Martin is talking to Mary Regan in the paper today. Uh, and I think he's right to say that there are there's a segment of the population um, that has fundamentally rejected the church, wants nothing to do with it, and is finished with the church altogether. But there is a much larger segment, this middle ground. I think he's calling the middle ground Catholics or cultural Catholics. In order to reconnect with those people, and it's absolutely vital for the survival of the church as an institution, it's absolutely vital that um, there is a reconnection there. To do so in any meaningful way, that's going to entail a reckoning. It's going to entail reckoning with uh, the horrific things uh, of the distant past and not so distant past, uh, as we see uh, this week with the grand jury in Pittsburgh. Um, These things have festered for way too long, uh, and the Pope needs to fully uh, commit the church to a different path and fully own up to what's happened in the past. And again, I'm a fan of this Pope, Mm. but at the same time, uh, in the past, his track record on this hasn't been so good. Uh, and I think he needs to get to grips with that. Uh, and again, I, I mean, I've said it before, I speak from within, I'm a practicing Catholic. Uh, but to me, it's fundamental uh, that an apology is given. Are you going to go next Sunday? I'm going, yeah. Uh, is it? Are you going? Because I was curious, I was speaking to someone else who was going during the week, and they were very much going because this was such an important cultural event as they saw it, you know, in, in, in kind of a historical moment for Ireland. Is it that for you or is it a spiritual event? It's both. Uh, I think it's both. It is, it's, it's a, a, I suppose, an extraordinary event, uh, but at the same time, it is a spiritual event for those of us who are Catholics. And for me, uh, it has sort of an interesting turnaround because uh, people here always talk about 1979 uh, and the Pope's visit to Ireland. Uh, the Pope's plane took him directly to Boston after he finished here. Mm. Uh, and I was at Mass in Boston Common with my parents in 1979. Uh, so now, uh, having relocated to this side of the Atlantic, there's a certain uh, poignancy in it for me. All right. Ilona? Um, well, I think one of the best articles is actually by Paddy Agnew in... The Sunday Independent, very Agnew these days. Yeah, I, um, I think it's really good. I think it's very interesting. The Pope's coming to Ireland and I suppose it is all really... The, the emphasis is on the clerical abuse. And I think that's added to by the fact that it's just... It's worldwide. It, it was seen as an Irish issue, as an Irish problem that the Irish were kind of totally you know, over overseen by the church. And now we're saying this was happening worldwide. So I think, as you mentioned already, the report that came out in Pennsylvania, um, that's kind of highlighting it there. We're seeing other reports and, and Paddy Agnew goes into all of that. He does question the Pope's role in all, uh, not the Pope's role in that, but the Pope's lack of leadership in many ways and coming out strongly and kind of putting an end to these guys. I mean, in this, it lists off even Cardinal Bernard Law and what happened to him that, you know, after the whole thing, in Boston, he relocated to the to the Vatican, was given quite high roles and roles, with, you know, with choosing people to be on different kind of committees, etc. So he continued to have massive influence. And how there is a need for this Pope or, and, and others in the Vatican to make a strong decision and just it has to be a no tolerance policy. And that's still not happening. So I think that's overshadowing completely this visit. And I think the Pope needs to be strong in this and he needs to come and he needs to meet with survivors of clerical abuse and he needs to speak out strongly if this is to have any meaningful you know, view into the future. Uh, John, you work in communications. How do you communicate a message, an apology like this? I think the thing you start off with every time is who who is your audience? And that comes back to Larry's point. Who's the Pope actually talking to when he comes? Is he talking to um, the, the minority group of people who are still committed 
Catholics, or is he talking to persuadable people who are half in and half out? And the, the uh, reported about 1.5 million people who identify as Catholic yeah. say they pray every week but don't go to mass. Sure. And are, are those people are those people reachable? And you know, what is your actual objective in in, in speaking to them? So there was a very interesting line, and in, uh, Mary Regan in the Sunday Business Post interviewed Archbishop Eamon Martin, and he said, "We have to decide whether the church is going to have a minority voice in society or an authoritarian voice." But there are two ways that that can go, right? If you're a minority that understands your position as a minority among other minorities, you can be a part of inclusive pluralism. But there's another way that a once powerful majority who's become a minority can go, which is to be reactionary and authoritarian. And I think that's still up in the air. And I'm not sure this pope has made a decision who he's actually talking to, right? Is it the committed base who who will stay with the Catholic Church no matter what? And is it important to persuade them? Or does he want to expand the mission of the church or, uh, let's say, um, uh, you know, recommit to be the church for everybody uh, and try to reach those persuadable Catholics, the ones you mentioned, the 1.5 million people who pray, who believe, Mm. but don't want to participate in the institution. Unfortunately, institutions develop their own internal logic, right, that often have nothing to do with the audience they're trying to reach. And it it becomes about self-preservation. It becomes about making sure that things are good for the people who are already comfortable within it. And I think that's a lot of the problem, like relocating Cardinal Law to a nice job in the Vatican when probably... In, in another type of environment, he just would have been jettisoned from any organization to you know prevent further PR damage. But religions are funny things that way, right? So people's commitment isn't based exclusively on whether they like the institution or not. We have the whole question of the relationship to God and which way you're supposed to be oriented towards that institution according to what God wants you to do, right? So that complicates it enormously here. Larry, the, I'm not sure if you read Dermot Farish in the Irish Times yesterday. He was writing about cultural Catholics. Yeah, and, and cultural, he referred to them as hypocrites, essentially, uh, that these were people who, uh, and I had the quote in front of me, uh, they legitimately can be seen, cultural Catholic can be legitimately seen as a euphemism to describe many who are simply lazy hypocrites who treat Catholic sacraments as festive <laughs> conveniences and do not engage in any meaningful debate about faith. Is there any point in trying to kind of have a broad church that includes people like well, that or should you just narrow it down and focus on those who, who maybe have a, a more, more ardent faith? It's it's a good debate and let me, let me get my little pettiness out of the way. Uh, it does irk me when I see at, you know, different sacraments, etc., whether it's a, a, you know, a confirmation or communion, uh, people who clearly have no connection whatsoever with the church and they receive, you know, they have their children receive communion when it's manifest that that child won't be back in the church perhaps until he or she uh, gets married. Um, that, that does It does me. bother you. It does, it does bother me at one level. But at the same time, uh, I do think that it's better for the church to reach out uh, and not just to minister to the ministered. Uh, the reason I say that is because uh, I think that there's a lot to faith. I think the church has a lot to offer uh, despite its failings. And I think that the more people, I think, who it, it can reach, uh, and the, again, we, we often forget when we talk about the institutional church, and there's a hell of a lot wrong with it. There's no question about it. But let's not forget the extraordinary message of Jesus Christ. And compassion, uh, I think, is central to that message. Uh, the more people, I think, who hear that message, uh, I think, can benefit greatly from it. Uh, and that's why I think that the audience, to John's point, has to be that persuadable middle ground Catholics, as uh, Eamon Martin is talking about today. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea to minister solely to the minister to uh, become a small, hardline flock. Uh, I don't think that's not the path I want to see the church go down. Are you ready for next weekend? Have you your bags packed? 
Plenty of walking shoes. It's going to be. Did you read one of the articles? Yeah. Uh, fourteen kilometers. Fourteen kilometers. <laughs> fourteen kilometers. Yeah, and and standing all in between it's, some of those. Kilometers. It's going to be a good workout, if nothing else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in Galway, apparently, back in seventy nine, when the Pope flew over to Galway, then in his helicopter, people got there at four in the morning, and they all lay down in the wet grass, and it was raining, and they tried to sleep in the rain, just lying down mm. on top of each other. It's incredible, isn't it? Uh, rain jacket. Something warm for when it gets cooler. And Neil, Larry, this is all for you. This is mm-hmm. don't bring your selfie stick. I know you like to carry that around <laughs> with you. Uh, your foghorn. Uh, and no flares, drones or animals. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? This this does offer the church a wonderful chance to reconnect with people. And I think it's back to the whole thing. The church should be about the people. It's, mm. it's never meant to be an institution. It was never meant to be people in the Vatican controlling. I mean, you look back, you mentioned the past. You look at the Bible. Jesus walked around moving around met with his people and this is what this Pope and I, I actually I feel a very warm feeling towards him and I'm hoping he will come and give a strong message and I'm hoping he will be inclusive and I think um, Eamon Martin's article talks about you know the, really the effect of, of all of the recent referendums be it the abortion be it the same sex marriage referendum on, on the church to realise that they no longer have the influence they cannot dictate to people so therefore they must adapt to meet the needs and and the beliefs of the people that they're meant to be overseeing and and representing. Uh, plenty of coverage in the papers that I want to get onto about uh, the race for the RS 2018. And I might start, uh, Larry, with Kevin Doyle's piece on page eight of the Sunday Independent. Gallagher's plan to win rematch with Michael D for the RS. Sean Gallagher is the candidate that isn't, you know. Mm. He, he is going to declare at some stage. We thought it might be this weekend, maybe in the next week. It's going to happen. And Kevin has an interesting, uh, has had an interesting look at some, it appears, some of their inside information yeah. of that campaign. Yeah, I mean, there's some interesting things in there. I mean, I think in particular, uh, he's saying that uh, one in five voters think that it's time for Higgins to retire. uh, And 60 percent of voters say that his uh, the president's about face on whether he would seek a second term uh, could influence their vote. Uh, Also, the idea that Gallagher would get 33% of second preferences, whereas uh, President Higgins would only get 22%. This is what their internal polling is showing. Uh, this is, I suppose, what they identify, they're identifying uh, as the path to victory. And before you can ever get into a political campaign, you have to identify a path to victory. That's the one that the Gallagher people, uh, I think, have d- decided is there. Uh, I don't I don't think it is there, to be perfectly frank. Uh, I think that the people, uh, I think Justine McCarthy in her piece today sums it up, uh, the collective attitude of the electorate, which is, if it ain't broke, why fix it? Uh, I think most people think that the president has done a very good job. He has done a very good job. I don't think there's anyone who disputes that. Uh, and I just don't see uh, Sean Gallagher, Gavin Duffy, Joan Freeman or any of the other challenges uh, that might emerge and might ultimately feature on the ballot, uh, I just don't see uh, how any of them can dislodge this president. I just don't see it. I I thought what was interesting in Kevin's piece as well is that issue about why he might have changed his mind that most, a lot of people, they don't seem too bothered by the fact that he has. It's 60% say it could influence their decision, Um, but you know, could and would are different things and uh, the tactic from the Gallagher campaign seems to be that they will improve that he has changed his position because he's grown comfortable with the uh, plushy lifestyle. And we've actually seen that kind of creeping in. Oh, There's I, really been a growing narrative in the last couple of weeks of how much the presidency costs and the, how much Michael D spends. That That's certainly going to feature. And I think uh, all of the candidates, to one extent or another, are going to say that, whether they say it directly or whether they say it, I, I suppose, more uh, subtly than that. But I think, again, the, Gall- the Gallagher 
point is that, uh, look, there was a serious flirtation with Gallagher last time, but that support was a mile wide and an inch deep. Uh, the fact that that one appearance on Frontline finished him, uh, I think, unfortunately uh, for him, uh, I think it confirmed in the collective electorate's mind uh, some doubts they had about him. Was he battle-tested? Was he ready? And despite the presidency being a symbolic office, if we look at the people who Ireland has selected to be president, uh, I think the, the electorate has demonstrated extraordinary wisdom. Uh, they've selected people uh, almost invariably uh, of the utmost caliber. Uh, if we look at the Irish presidents that, that we've had. Uh, so I, I just, again, measured against all of that, uh, I just don't see Michael D. Higgins uh, not getting a second term. Uh, John, I'm going to uh, dip into your uh, communications talent here again. Uh, opposition research is something that we're used to seeing, you know, obviously in mm. the US presidential elections. But how difficult is it to employ it, you know, when the job is kind of... I don't want to say meaningless. That's not fair. It isn't meaningless. And I don't believe it is. Well, when you don't but there's not really any responsibility. Yeah. Well, I guess Michael D. Higgins doesn't have to stake out any positions, right? He doesn't have to nail his colors to the mask. So for seven years, he's he's been a living symbol of the nation, right? That's, I guess, what he does. And I think he carries off that role very well. Like he provides a sort of uh, comfort to people. He's not, He's non-controversial. You can't sort of point to anything he's done in the last seven years and say, well, I I firmly disagree with that, Michael D. So this is why, as Larry says, you know, people will focus on what they can, what available facts are there? How much is he spending? How has he managed his staff? You remember there were a few defections uh, a couple of years ago. It was never fully explained why a lot of his closest advisors um, left uh, the Auris and so forth. And there might be perfectly innocent reasons, but if I was doing opposition research, I'd want to gin up something out of that kind of thing. So, but but then again, I'm not sure people um, vote for the presidency the same way they vote for their TD, right? So you're voting for your TD based on what your TD can deliver to your constituency. Mm -hmm. And then overall, what is the party platform and how is that going to direct the country's policies, right, for the next uh, five years, let's say. Over the presidency, it's not like that. As Justine McCarthy points out in the Sunday Times today, you want an articulate figurehead who can understand or empathize with the country and represent us. But then when they have to make an intervention – um, can do it effectively as Mary McAleese had to do after the Oma bombing and after September 11th. You want somebody who can step up at a moment like that without having to prepare, uh, reassure everybody and make connections with the rest of the world uh, in, in a way that we can all be proud of. Um, and meaning no personal disrespect to someone like Sean Gallagher, I, he just doesn't fill me with the confidence that he could um, act in the same way at that time. His skills are somewhere else. Alona, what about uh, Sean Gallagher's team's assertion that at least with the two Marys that there was something the presidency stood for, you know, the Manana Heron uh, and then building bridges, but that there's nothing. Michael D. doesn't, has no overarching theme to his presidency. Well, it's weak. We, it has yeah. achieved nothing. Well, if we go back pre-Mary Robinson, I mean, it was very much just a soft role, somebody safe that would go around and bring the shamrock and all of that. And then Mary Robinson came and changed the role completely and followed by Mary McAleese and they upped the game. Absolutely. Michael D. Higgins has done a good, comfortable, safe job on it and he's represented as well. For me, the issue, I suppose, is that he was quite clear first time around that this was going to be a one term office only. And the fact that he's changing his mind, that that would bother me a wee bit. But I suppose the big thing is I don't think there's anyone out there that's going to be able to, to offer any real kind of alternative to him. And that's the big issue. And looking at the papers, especially the Sunday Times, um, I mean, feeble race for the Auris shows the office itself is in need of change. And I mean, 
I think that's what we're getting in the papers, that there is nobody strong going against him. Um, Sean Gallagher, my own feeling is that if he was really going to be a contender and if he was really thinking that there was going to be that sympathy that he lost out the last time because of the primetime programme, he would already have been pushing this and he'd already have been getting that groundswell of support and he's not. And if he's already having to think and say in one of the papers that in the next two weeks he'll make his decision, I think whatever decision he makes, it's too late. So are, do you... Uh Want an election? Would you like to see one? Even if you, you know, you you don't necessarily want to replace Michael D. Do you think we should well, have an I election? See, I suppose I, with my medical hat on, I'm wondering what's going to happen if something happens to Michael D. What happens as he as he gets a bit older? And this isn't about ageism. Uh, it is the fact that. You know, he's travelling all over the world. That takes its toll on you at any age, but especially he's 77 now. By the time he's 80, 83 in the last year of his term. Is he going to be fit for that? What if he's not? What if things start to deteriorate? You know, how how do you put a stop to it? How do you intervene without it becoming awful for him and embarrassment for him? And in another article, they're talking about should we be having medicals? A bit like before the President Trump had to have a, a medical done. Are we going to insist on a medical, an annual medical to make sure you're fit for the job? I don't think you can do that either. So that, you know, but at the same stage, I think we do need to have some kind of plan in place if he is going to go ahead. How will we be able to protect him and protect the office? Larry, this brings reminds me when Lona was speaking there about uh, John Paul too. Remember, towards mm. the end of of his time, there was like, really like physically he wasn't capable of of the job anymore. You know, he wasn't capable yeah. of travelling. Yeah. He was very, very ill and very unwell. And just because of the nature of the position, he he had to keep it. Um, do you want an election? Um. I don't know if I want an election. I mean, I think it, it, an election in, in some ways is, is, is always a good thing. I love politics and I love elections. So yeah. for, at that level, I, I do. But look, I think it has to be one of the things I'd say about this field is that, that there seems to be a rationale that there's a, vo- a vacuum on the center right that's not being filled because we have uh, a Sinn Féin candidate. We have Michael D. And there's kind of an I'll have a go mentality about this, I think, uh, because they spot that ideological vacuum. You know, people who uh, who can't abide Sinn Féin and find Michael D. just a little bit too lefty uh, and they think there's a market there. That to me is not a compelling reason for an election uh, in that sense. So uh, look, it's a democracy. Uh, you know, Michael D's not entitled to a second term. He has to earn it. Uh, and that's fair enough. Uh, but the rationale for the campaign, that's what I'm curious about. And I'm curious as well about Sinn Féin's rationale uh, for running a candidate. To me, uh, it seems like it's probably going to be a profile raising exercise yeah. and an exercise in divorcing it's, itself from the demons of the past. It's the journey rather than the destination. For yeah. Them. And I, I mean, I, again, I just I, you know, that to me, uh, it, politically, it's probably a very wise move, but in terms of uh, a compelling justification, uh, I just don't see it. But also a measure of the power of Sinn Féin now to think that they actually are able to field a candidate. I mean, you know, even last time round, I'm not sure they would have been getting any of this kind of coverage or profile. Yeah, absolutely. Do we ever vote centre-right, though, for a presidency? I mean, you know, I, I don't know to the extent to which ideology fuels a vote for president at all, but I'm just saying that uh, clearly we have two candidates, a Sinn Féin candidate and Michael D. Higgins, who are both definably of the left. And well, like, I think Fine Gael would be happy never to contest a presidential election. <laughs> well, if precedent is any dictate, yeah, you, one, one would go along with that. But, you know, look, that seems to be the, the rationale that, that is underpinning Gallagher and Duffy. Very certainly. Uh, and I think that was the rationale behind Gallagher last time around, this kind of outside a business person, etc. Uh, I just don't think that that's going to ultimately resonate with the electorate. I think Michael D. Higgins uh, is going to be reelected and reelected comfortably.
Well, I think you have to keep the engine oiled, right? That's the, the the idea of having an election isn't just to sort out candidates and figure out what we want from the president. It's to keep the mechanism moving. And I think if we were to say, well, we don't have to hold it or we can just just kind of kick on with Michael D because there's no opposition to him, I think you have to kind of go through the motions. And I, I'm fine with Sinn Féin fielding a candidate for, for those for those reasons that you know they want to raise the profile of somebody they want to get out there and test themselves on a national stage etc um i think that's a le- legitimate thing for a political party to do so you know our constitution says we have to have these elections we have these offices and we have to fill them um i want to go back to something alona said earlier about the dearth of talent that's out there and i i think we have a kind of a a generational gap in politics where there aren't any emeritus politicians that people can look at and say, yes, I'd like to see that person in the Auris. And a lot of that has to do with what we remember from the Celtic Tiger and who was in charge then, and then how it fell to Fine Gael and Labour after Fianna Fáil to uh, pick up the pieces of the economy and put it back together, which was a pretty thankless task, I think. So when you look at the senior cohort of politicians who maybe are nearing retirement age or have retired from those parties, nobody wants to touch them. Nobody wants to see them in the Auris because because they have a kind of a stink on them from from the trauma that the country went through 10 years ago. So we're in a, in this strange period now where um, the types of candidates, you know, say a former Taoiseach or a former minister that may have been elevated to a position to run for the presidency are not seen as viable at all because they're associated with, you know, having an attachment to a real and controversial policy position in the past that would make them unviable as a candidate. Yeah, look, we will be speaking more and more about the presidency, I'm sure, between now and possible election day. Uh, but a, a story I want to get to before we take a break is Labour and leadership of Labour. Alan Kelly has an article today in the Sunday Independent. And you know the way they say, Larry, there's great political speeches uh, down through the years. The great character assassinations politically, you never mention the person you're talking about, but it's obvious who you're talking about. I'm not sure if Alan Kelly's article today will go into the realms of the great political speeches of all time if it had been uttered out loud uh, but it is obvious who he's talking about oh, the, the, there's, no, <laughs> there's, no, there's no question about it and I think uh, Kelly's piece one of the lines that sticks out for me uh, is when he's talking about the average family uh, and the idea that they should be able to have a pizza at the weekend they should be able to have a modest holiday every year uh, they should be able to ch- change the car every five years uh, I think that those that's actually there's something to that it's plain it's everyday language it's something that people can actually relate to. And it's important for laborers. They try to carve out where they're headed. Uh, to an extent, you know, one of the, the, the I suppose, a- aspects of their appeal had been uh, social liberalism uh, in terms of things like abortion and yeah. uh, same-sex marriage, etc. Uh, however, uh, their clothes on that front have been stolen to some extent, uh, both by the Social Democrats and, surprisingly, by Fine Gael. Uh, so they have to kind of redefine how they're going to appeal uh, and redefine how they're going to appeal what might be called the sensible left. And I think Kelly's uh, approach in the piece today, those kind of bread and butter issues, uh, I think there's a resonance there and there's something there that maybe they can appeal at a level that the Social Democrats mightn't and that that Fina Gale mightn't. So it's an interesting tone, an interesting tenor for him to strike. But at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, uh, if Labour's at 3% or so in the polls, uh, is now the best time to be in, in to have a lot of infighting and to be arguing over these sorts of things? Uh, and I think Aon O'Riordan was getting, an, getting at that uh, in a piece he had in the Irish Times during the week, this idea uh, of uh, some sort of 
coalescing around that sensible left and standing up for principles, et cetera. Uh, and I think that that's, that has to be at the heart of the message too. So uh, in fighting like this, when you're at 3%, uh, I just don't know what good it's going to do. Yeah, we've had the benefit of all reading it. So I should have said to people actually listening, it's the Labour Party leader, Brendan Howland, who isn't mentioned. Uh, I didn't in, mention him either. <laughs> in the article, but it's quite obvious, uh, Ilona, who Alan Kelly is talking about. Like, is it a poison chalice to take it at 3%? Or is he better off wait, let them get hammered in the next general election and then take over? Well, maybe it's happening now because, as you said, the heat seems to be off for uh, an imminent election because it's only the beginning of the summer or before the summer. So we're talking about a probability of October. I don't think this would be happening if, if that heat was on. And I think perhaps it's just stirring the pot a wee bit and seeing what happens when you're in a safe place to do it. John, I, I have interviewed Brendan Hannan before. I have great time for Brendan Hannan. I have a lot of respect for him. But I'd struggle to describe if you asked me what direction he's taken the Labour Party since he took over, yeah, there. yeah, but but again, they're sort of in the shadows, and they're not they're yeah. not in the in the forefront of anything really. And I think they have that problem, similar to what I described there around, around the presidency, which is they were involved in the first Fine Gael government, and there maybe isn't a whole lot of distance yet between the the current leadership and the sort of past um, policies that they they uh, put through in coalition. I think it's interesting to see. Alan Kelly coming out with this stuff, not just from a kind of inside baseball point of view, who's going to be the next leader, but in terms of um, actually repositioning what what the left means. And it's something that the Democrats in the U.S. are going through right now as well and beginning to talk about real practical policies, impossible though they may be to implement, are actually popular with people. Mm -hmm. So things like um, universal basic income, higher minimum wage, universal health care. Um, a federal jobs guarantee. These are basically the types of things that Alan Kelly is talking about, and they're classic leftist positions. You know, yeah. we will do, we will use uh, the the resources of the entire nation to make sure ordinary people are secure in their homes, in their jobs, and in their families. Boom, that's it, right? And if you talk about it at that level, it will have a big resonance. Now, when you get down to the detail, you can't, you probably can't do three out of four of those things. Yeah. But maybe you do one of them. Uh, well, look, Alan Kelly's piece is on page 24 of the Sunday Independent for anyone who wants to read it. There is that great Fergus Finley description of other political parties having unsavoury leadership contests, but they do it behind closed doors. At least Labour have the decency to do it out in the open for everyone else to see, <laughs> <laughs> which seems to be what they're doing here. Um, I, I wanted to, uh, Ilona, have a quick talk about the story that Susan Mitchell has on the Business Post, page six. I wonder if you could explain exactly what's happening. GPs advise to limit early abortions to nine weeks so that post-referendum this was the uh, the 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 new uh the new reality was going to be uh, zero to 12 weeks in your gp surgery 12 to 24 on more limited grounds uh somewhere else whether that be in a maternity hospital or a specially dedicated clinic uh but now gp saying only up to nine possibly well, I, I think some of this, again, the pressure is going to start because obviously Leo and, and team have promised that this, that the terminations would be introduced by January of next year. So we're really moving ahead. And where are we on it? Um, have we got GP buy-in in this? And again, they put it out there that this was something that was kind of fairly benign that could happen in your GP surgery. You'd go, you'd get seen, you'd come back 72 hours later and that would be it. I think GPs, well, kind of wanting to have the options and seeing and dealing with these kind of crisis pregnancies in our practices every day, this was taking it to a new level. And our college, the Irish College of General Practitioner, whose role is to kind of offer, offer guidelines, offer guidance about standards of care, practice of care. 
have come out now and kind of they've issued a document to all GPs in the country looking for some advice back from it. And that's further to a lot of criticism they got at the very beginning when uh, when they had kind of gone into the Oireachtas Health Committee and said, look, at GPs were perfectly able to provide this service and would provide it and had the capability and the scope and the time to do it. And that's when GPs really came back and said, absolutely not. I mean, we're, we're to the pin of our collar as it is. Mm. You know, how are we going to be able to offer the resources and the time and, and the skill set that's required to dealing with this next level? So although somebody may come in at the moment in crisis pregnancy and they can't necessarily get a termination here at the moment unless it's meeting strict medical criteria. Many of us have facilitated and helped arrange uh, terminations for them in the UK. And we know that, OK, this this is going to change and needs to change. But how can we safely do it? Safely when I mean that, OK, physically safely. And this whole thing of up to nine weeks, between nine and 12 weeks, there is some concern that women should perhaps have a scan done. Because if you're examining women, you can't tell that they're, until they're above 12 weeks, whether they're, you know, above 12 weeks, between nine and 12, you've no way of knowing that without a scan. So would people kind of have their dates wrong, maybe fudge their dates deliberately to make sure that they can get a medical termination as opposed to having a scan and maybe requiring something else being done. So this is what this is about. Uh, And also the GPs allowing them to feed back to our college who will then kind of say well, look at these are the resources does every GP provide this do we have specialist clinics like in the UK where GPs can refer to or women can self refer to and these these are all the things that now need to be discussed yeah. and yeah, it's just interesting going. yeah we're still it's still very much in the unknown even though as you said promises have been made promises have been made and promises will have to be um, will have to be kept and I think we, but we've also got to look at the resources because nobody's talked about well where are these scans going to be provided the, the thing at the time was oh well the women can go to an early pregnancy unit completely even to suggest that was wrong early pregnancy units are full of women who are there because they think they may be having a miscarriage you can't have you can't have that that would be completely wrong but you do need access to these scans without a delay and you also need access to counselling now in the UK it's interesting GPs there have been told that they shouldn't if a woman comes and requests a termination of pregnancy that they're not to question them or try counselling them against it they're to kind of offer them the options and the referral pathways and that's it but I would tell you from the many women who come and their first reaction maybe I can't go ahead with this pregnancy I can't do it I can't do it and often with time with counselling with a bit of support um, they come back and they say well no listen I've decided against it I will I will keep this and that's what we've got we've got to make sure that people can get over that immediate panic moment have the supports and then if they make the decision to go ahead that it's done seamlessly without any stress and without any pressure for them Yeah and look there was lots of promises as well from politicians that you know that on the yes side that uh, any regime would be what was it safe legal and rare and you imagine if you want to keep it rare you have to have those counselling and supports mm. in place that you mentioned uh, look it is interesting it's another story uh, that we'll be talking more more about uh, Larry I, I want to ask you about um, a story that Marion McKeown has in the Business Post uh, I, I like Marion's writing um, and I seek it every week uh, but I kind of read it and I kind of feel an- another week another step too far for Donald Trump Yeah I mean it's uh, this is this is in relation to his revocation of the security clearance of former CIA Director Brennan. Uh, and again, it's a, a petty, vindictive, uh, rotten thing to do that I think is counterproductive and doesn't make sense at any level. It seems to be driven, uh, as usual, by a petty personal mm. grievance. Um, 
But is it a step too far, as the headline suggests? Look, it's a, you know, there's been some research in this, and evidently in this fashion anyway, it's the first time in American history that this has been done. Uh, so it is quite a step. Now, I mean, I, I suppose against this, and you have to always present both sides, against this, uh, it is true that Brennan uh, himself is a little bit unprecedented in terms of saying some very pr- provocative things uh, after he'd been head of the CIA. That's not typical behavior. But again, uh, this is an untypical presidency. Uh, the question then becomes, why has he done this? I mean, I, I mentioned the petty personal grievance. I think that's probably uh, a lot of it. But there's also speculation that uh, he did this to divert attention to uh, this Omarosa woman who worked for him uh, and evidently has uh, all sorts of recordings uh, about things he said, including may possibly the N-word, uh, that he did this as a, a distraction uh, from all of that. Uh, look, I don't know. It's hard to know what is that exactly is going through this guy's mind. Uh, sometimes I think people attribute to him too much wisdom by saying this is all a master game. Uh, I don't <laughs> think he operates that way. Uh, I think he just things on the spur of the moment. I think yeah. he flies off the handle. Uh, and I think that this is another instance of that. Uh, but the big question becomes, and Dan O'Brien is writing about this today uh, in The Independent, um, you know, people are, are – some people I think in the media and elsewhere and on the, on the left uh, incessantly bash Trump, scoff at the idea that he might get a second term, speculate that he might be impeached. But the reality is his numbers – in a relative sense, have held. They've held, and uh, those who I think are writing this guy off, uh, I think that they're not getting the zeitgeist that exists in the United States. I was there for almost a month this summer, and my friends who voted for Donald Trump are still with them every step of the way. Yeah, NPR. If you go to NPR Politics, they have a great on the website where you can compare uh, popularity tracking figures against former presidents, and Donald Trump actually doesn't fare that badly uh, when when you look at his figures compared to recent presidents. And there's another element of this that I think the polls are not capturing. And it's this. There are people who do not approve of Donald Trump. The question is always, do you approve of President Trump? There are a certain segment of people, I'm convinced, and I'm convinced because of the election result in 2016, who do not approve of him, but would nonetheless vote for him. Uh, And they do so uh, to some extent because of the economy. And the numbers are very good. The figures are all there. They're very good. And, And indeed, some of the people who are hurting economically are voting for Trump because of cultural issues. So it's an extraordinary uh, situation uh, and one in which the Democrats are going to have to up their game. Uh, I'm conscious of how little time we have, John, but I, I wanted to briefly mention that story on the front page of the Business Post. Your former paper from my former colleague, Ian Guider, has it, cash for jobs, 100 million paid by IDA to tech giants, banks and big pharma. Uh, Ian was getting a bit of pushback on social media last night. I've seen that, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, suggesting he was kind of attacking the foreign direct investment sector to a degree. Uh, what was your take on this? Well, I, I mean, I think Ian is bringing one, one thing out, uh, the news bit here, is that EU rules require us now to disclose how much we're subsidizing subsidizing these this foreign direct investment. So that aggregate number, the hundred million, you know, is a new thing. And he has some details on which companies are, are, are getting how much money. And one that stood out that he he pointed out was Abbott Labs, a big US multinational, uh, that got a fourteen million million subsidy. Um, you know, to 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 invest here, and a lot of these companies are are big employers. Now, I think Ian's story is missing some important context, and maybe we'll see some more reporting on this um, as as he reports the story out. But what what I was left asking at the end of it, well, was well, how much is this hundred million as a percent of overall investment from these co- companies? You know, so if they're bringing billions in, a hundred million in terms of incentive seems like money well spent by the government. Now, he he breaks down some of the figures and that shows that um, you know these companies. Companies are getting paid, say, thirty grand 
per job. And again, that sounds like a lot, like a, he- a big headline figure. But if these jobs stick around for a very long time, the value that they add to the economy over time will be far greater than 30000 Now, of course, we know some of these companies don't stick around. We had the announcement um, er- earlier this week that Gla- Gla- GlaxoSmithKline would be closing its factory in Sligo with the loss of over um, 400 jobs. And Ian mentions that just at the end of the piece. And I thought, wouldn't that have been a great piece if we found out, well, hang on, these guys only came here in 2012. Are they going to pay their grants back? Had they received all the money they were promised? And if they were promised money on, on certain uh, presumptions that they would you know, build a factory, employ people for a certain amount of time, were we taken for a ride by them? So that's something, you know, if Ian's going to stay in this story, I'd like to find out more about because I'm sure there are individual stories like that where companies are taking advantage. But overall, I find it hard to criticize the IDA for throwing $100 million at, at companies that are employing 10% of the population. And I think most people in the regions who are beneficiaries of IDA jobs are not going to care that much. All right. Look, that story, if you want to read it in more detail, Ian Guider has it in the Sunday Business Post today. That is all we have time for. John Isle, Head of Communications for Good Body, Larry Donnelly, Law Lecturer in NUIG, and Dr. Ilona Duffy, a GP in Monaghan. Thank you all very much for